Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 7th, 2019. This is episode 2455 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for an expert counsel Q&A show. Uh, we've got a good one lined up for you guys today. Here's what we got. We got Stephen Harris. Haven't heard from him for a while. We've got a great question for him on detecting surveillance. You know, people um, planting cameras in places like an Airbnb you might be staying at for uh, nefarious reasons or uh, actual surveillance for people who are trying to gather collective intelligence. Is there any way to detect that? Uh, we're going to talk all about that and have some real eye-opening moments during that discussion. Then have you ever heard... Or thought of the uh, concept of citizen's arrest. I know this is a very liberty-oriented community, and in general, we uh, we don't really want to go out and bother someone for uh, for burning a tube or something like that. But uh, you know, if you if you saw somebody doing something violent, dangerous, costing somebody property, etc., uh, something was a serious crime, and you thought about intervention, where does citizen's arrest uh, fall in that? We're having a segment with Officer Steve Wise today called The Ins, Outs, and Definitely Don't Do's About Citizens' Arrest. I think we'll learn a lot from it. And then a little short segment from Chef Keith Snow on using hog lard for deep frying. I got a question on scoping rifles. I've covered this so often and usually have the same recommendations, uh, no matter how much people try to change it, of a couple, three different things. I decided to uh, reach out to, I, I call him a guest expert council member, because I've reached out to him a few times. He's always really great. Uh, retired Master Sergeant J.R. Haley. He's uh, just a, a gun geek extraordinaire. And uh, so I've decided to get a different uh, answer to this, though it'll actually be in some ways very similar to mine. I guess maybe that makes a point. Then we're going to talk about market volatility and how Trump is doing end runs around the Federal Reserve with John Pugliano. Then we're going to have the good, bad, ugly, and really ugly of various wound closure devices from old Doc Bones. And we've got the ins and outs of grain-free dog foods with Doc Kelly. I'm going to have some additional thoughts on that uh, that may make her answer make more sense to some people who really feel very strongly about this. And then I have a question on using old IBCs that may have contained something we're not particularly happy about. Uh, in an aquaponic system and building a big aquaponic system, uh, big for a small-scale home anyway, and sump pumps and other things like that. So we shall get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at our YouTube channel of the week. Today's, uh, or I should say this week's YouTube channel of the week is... Uh, CGP Gray, and this comes from Nick in Mongolia, who said, This guy's videos are one of my go-to places for introducing informational educational content from my son at home. He covers a variety of topics through various aspects of history to get a lot of attention, tend to get a lot of attention. The animation content style are engaging, to the point my 10-year-old son actually watches his videos from his on his own time, uh, his rules for rulers, humans need not apply, and the simple solution to traffic videos are some of my favorites. And this guy is making it happen. How many subscribers? 3.8 million subscribers. 
Uh, he's got a feature video called How Machines Learn that's really interesting. Uh, some of the other videos include How to Become Pope, Canada and the United States Bizarre Borders, The Difference Between the United Kingdom and Great Britain, and a bunch of other real cool videos. So there will be a link in the show notes where you can check this guy out. I've definitely subscribed to him. I think this might be one of those uh, channels that's really useful to you guys that homeschool and maybe really useful to those of you that want to expand education even if you don't homeschool and those that want to keep education going in the summertime with your kids because his videos are good. They are a video that you as an adult can watch, but if you're, once your kids are up into the 10-ish range, I would say, that's about right, 9, 10, uh, they will probably find at least some of these very interesting. And the more, You know, the thing I've learned with kids and getting them interested in kind of higher-level higher content on like a YouTube channel is to find one or two. If you can find one or two videos that uh, a personality or a group puts out that will engage that kid, then they'll start digging through it themselves, and they will start becoming open to things that maybe they wouldn't have been otherwise, and that's when uh, education really starts to grow. This is a great channel. You should check it out. Uh, check it out. Again, it is called C-G-P Gray, G-R-E-Y. Uh, but again, I will have a link in the show notes for you. With la with that, let's get on into it here and let's uh, get our first segment knocked out. Uh, we had a question for Stephen Harris on detecting things like hidden cameras and uh, bugging devices and things like that, and uh, some real nefarious stuff that goes on out there. I mean, there's entire websites that are, you know, showing people uh, showing uh, videos that were captured in changing rooms of people changing their clothes and stuff like that, and you don't really want to be that person. I think if it ended up being me, they'd be like, oh, God, what happened? We No. <laughs> but, you know, other people, maybe they would end up, you know, viral, and all of a sudden it's causing problems for you, and it's just a violation. And there's other reasons you may want to protect yourself, and there's devices that are purported to help you find things like that. But do they really work, and what can you do about all this? With that, hey, Steve, man, help us sort this out. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for an expert panel to answer your questions. And I got a good one today. I could talk about this for hours, but <laughs> I got to fit it in in 10 minutes. Question is for Steve Harris. Please provide guidelines for purchasing the best RF wireless camera detectors to identify consumer-grade digital recording devices located within a small room that could compromise reasonable expectations of privacy. To shorten it up, he's talking about all the news stories where there have been cameras discovered in women's bathrooms, in changing rooms, especially Airbnbs, hotels, and other places. How can, what can you do to protect yourself? What can you buy? Just tell me what to buy, Steve. What makes you think I know anything about clandestine video and photography methods and stuff? Because... I don't. So what you are thinking of is the old 900 megahertz, 2.4 gigahertz analog video and audio transmitters on the whole variety of frequencies where you see in that paradigm of excellence and knowledge Hollywood where they have a little thing you hold in your hand and an antenna and you move around and it goes beep. Beep, a little red LED goes on. It's like, oh, you're bugged. Okay, complete bullshit. 
Those are called field strength meters. They detect radio frequency fields. If you are being bugged today, it is very likely not with a radio frequency transmitter going to a receiver in the next room attached to a VCR on an eight-hour loop. So, first method, how to get pictures of naked women in the dressing room illegally. The first method, which will be hard to detect, is called a set and retrieve. So you watch TV, you see this little sugar cube-sized camera called the cop cam. And it's black and everything, and it'll record for like two hours or four hours. And it costs $29 or $19.95. So you buy yourself one of those, and you, you go into your Target location, like the women's changing room in Target. And you look around, and you peel off a piece of paint or take a picture of it, and it's, ah, it's this off eggshell white paint. And you go home, and you take some blue tape, and you tape up the lens on your camera, and you get a color match, and you spray paint it, paint it to this right perfect color. And then you go back with your colored camera, the same color as the changing room, and something better than bubblegum, and you stick it up in the corner, or you stick it down in the bottom looking up, or you stick it to the ceiling tiles up above the color of the ceiling tiles if you can reach that high. If you're really good, you'll put a little hole through the ceiling tile and put the camera up above the ceiling tile looking down through a pencil lead size hole. The way you pick this up, you are looking for with your eyeballs things that do not belong. What's that little square up in the corner? Or, you know, if I wanted to do it, I'd put it inside of, like, a Coke can, empty, of course, uh, taped, uh, adhered to the inside with a little hole right in the black area of the Coke can, and I'd leave that in the bottom of the ladies' changing room in the corner like a piece of trash pointing up. So it's like, what's this Coke can here? Okay, You camouflage your camera if you can, either by color or by putting it into something. So you are looking. Okay, this is a set and retrieve. The person sets it, comes back three hours later, and just picks up the trash or pulls the camera and takes it with him, pulls out the memory card and looks at it. You have to pick this up with your eyeball. There is no electronic device that's going to go, there's a camera here. Okay, it don't work that way. Next, if someone did place an analog video transmitter, it is going to need a source of power. If it's batteries up in the ceiling looking through a little hole, then this is going to run for days, maybe weeks, maybe hours. But it is still going to be, then it is broadcasting to receiver. So it's broadcasting a video signal, an analog signal, like you plug an RCA cable into. What do you have that can record really an analog video signal with anymore? Not much. There aren't really VCRs around with eight-hour tapes. It's just not an easy, feasible thing to really do in a situation like Target. And then you got a limited recording time, and then you got to search through all your recordings and, you know, find the moment of the naked female or whatever you're looking for, and it's a royal pain in the butt, so not likely. The most uh, way it's going to be done today, in 2019, is they are going to take a Wi-Fi or networked camera, and they are going to put this inside of a housing designed for it, 
that looks like a smoke detector or a clock or a teddy bear or something like that, and they are going to plug it into the network of the house, probably by wireless. And if they're smart, it won't say teddy bear camera. It'll say, you know, whatever, you know, house guest Wi-Fi, something or another. This is the famous B&B case where the security expert was on vacation with his family. He searched the Wi-Fi. He found the Wi-Fi uh, of the house, and he looked up everything attached to the Wi-Fi, which you can do with a Wi-Fi sniffing software, and then he went to every IP address. When the IP address of the camera came up, it came up and said, you know, blah, blah, blah wireless camera it's like oh great person didn't even bother changing the default login and password so he looked it up on the internet based upon the brand name that was on the screen in front of him and he logged in it's like well there's our family okay this is the type of stupid stuff you're going to find now the great majority of these cameras cannot see in the dark so they all have infrared lights that come on ir led lights of some type and the thing is, when you turn off all the lights, you can see these LEDs as a faint red glow if your eyes are adapted to darkness, and you can see close to the near-infrared spectrum, which most people can. The other thing you do that makes these things show up like a wild sign that goes, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, is you take a camera that is sensitive to infrared light, such as another security and surveillance camera. Some cell phones are, but most aren't sensitive to infrared light because they take better pictures. So if you get a camera that has night vision on it, no matter what type it is, uh, a good example would be the, um, the, the GoPros. The GoPros and the GoPro clones. You can get one as cheap as 40 bucks on eBay. They will see in the infrared pretty good. And you just hold up the little camera and you look around. It's like, whoa, what the heck's that bright light? I can't see it with my eyeballs. I can see it with the camera. There's infrared lights there staring at you, buddy. That's your problem. And that's how you can tell if you are bugged. You can also, a cheap way of doing this is with a WISE camera, W-Y-Z-E. You can turn your phone into a hotspot, connect the WISE to your phone as a hotspot, look at the WISE camera powered by a USB battery. It costs $25 on Amazon. And this sees in the infrared very good. Uh, make sure you turn off its infrared LEDs uh, so you can see the other infrared LEDs. It's a switch in the setup. And you can scan around, look for these little lights looking at you. They will be plainly obvious on the camera, and then you know that you are bugged. Now, the biggest way that you are bugged and people can do surveillance on you is through your laptop or your cell phone. Uh, yes, your Android can, in fact, look like it is powered off and drawing little current and recording everything that you are saying. Your laptop, just by going to a website, can be recording your video and audio and everything you are doing forever and ever without you clicking on a thing, which is why all my selfie cameras and my laptops have a piece of blue 3M tape over the camera. If I want to use it, I pull the camera off. The big thing is, as Edward Snowden said, 
The entire world is now bugged on a 24-7 basis through their cell phones and their electronic devices. If someone professionally wants to bug you, you are not going to know it at all. If an amateur is going to try to surveil you, you can detect it with the methods I mentioned. Thank you. You can get all my stuff at Stephen1234.com and my membership website, Harris1234.com. Of course, if you want to know the truth, just say, Alexa, do you work for the NSA? Ah, Steve left you with a cliffhanger. Well, what you're going to need to do if you use Alexa is ask yourself and see what she says. I know what she says. Maybe I'll tell you next week for those of you that don't have access to an Alexa device. With that, let's go ahead and take our next one. This was something I saw on um, Facebook. So... Uh, a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I did a show on misconceptions and myths. And I crowdsourced it from our Facebook forum group and said, hey, what, what are your ideas, what are your thoughts, what are your questions on? Someone asked about citizen's arrest, and I said, no, I am not going to do that. I am going to that, turn that over to a law enforcement professional, and I happen to have one on the council, so... Uh, with that, let's hear from Officer Steve Wise on the, the do's, the don'ts, the ins and outs, and the absolutely do-nots when it comes to a citizen's arrest. Greetings, Jack and TSB listeners. This is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement officer, and that tries to answer your questions that are related to law enforcement. Remember that laws do vary from state to state, so make sure you check with your local attorney for any legal advice. Jack sent me a question he saw on the Facebook page, and one of the members wanted to know uh, the ins and outs of citizen's arrest. Well, citizen's arrest is very tricky, uh, but it's also important to understand the topic. Uh, I think the biggest recommendation I would have is to leave arrest to the professionals. If you witness a crime, your best action, of course, is to protect yourself and your family. Your second action, if you're going to try to do something, is to uh, be the best possible witness you can. Take some pictures, videos, uh, if it's safe, write down descriptions of people, uh, their clothing, direction of travel, etc. And then be prepared to hand this information off to the responding officers. Uh, you should be more concerned with uh, going home safe uh, than uh, trying to help stop a crime. So in this situation, uh, be safe uh, if, it, it, if it is at all possible. So the the concept of citizen's arrest is pretty straightforward. I, I know that somebody, if you know somebody has committed a felony, then you can generally make a citizen's arrest. That seems straightforward, but uh, um, really, uh, do you really know what constitutes a felony? All right, a felony, let's give you some definitions here. A felony is considered a violation of law where the penalty is $1,000 and or a year in jail or more. So, uh, so thousand dollars and more than a year in jail, or a year or more. Uh, this could include some drug laws, but today a lot of those are considered misdemeanors or completely ignored. So you'd be taking a gamble in that situation. So I'd ignore that completely. Um, maybe still be the witness and pass information off. Um, a misdemeanor, since I mentioned that, uh, is any law that could, you could be sentenced to less than a thousand dollars and less than one year in jail. So the big felonies uh, that uh, most people are familiar with are murder, kidnapping, aggravated assault, rape, armed robbery, uh, aggravated child molestation. And uh, I tell you, people generally have a good idea when these things happen. Uh, these are examples of, of situations where 
uh, the average person probably feels the need to get involved. Um, citizen's arrest also applies only to state laws. You can't use citizen's arrest to enforce any federal or local laws. So the person speeding on your street can't do anything about that. And if you think you're going to help round up illegal Im immigrants, can't do that either. So a thing in your favor is if you are, uh, the thing in your favor is you're not law enforcement. So you're not constrained by some of the constitutional requirements. So a good example here is Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. That's a limitation on government. It's not an individual's limitation. So as a citizen, you're going to get a little more leeway when it comes uh, than, uh, to illegal searches and seizures, uh, um, you know, certainly more than a police officer would. I had a case where we responded to a rape of a child. When we arrived in the scene, the suspect was on his knees, handcuffed behind his back, and was bleeding about the head. Uh, he had taken a pretty good beating from the people on the street. Uh, these people have performed a citizen's arrest. The force needed to subdue the individual might have been a bit excessive, but uh, we didn't see the resistance the suspect put up, so I wasn't there to judge the citizens. I was just happy that I didn't have to go out and try to find the suspect. Uh, an important thing to remember, though, is that citizens are only allowed to use the same amount of force used against them. If the person fighting you back with your hands, you can't pull a club and beat them. So uh, law enforcement officers are given the right to slightly exceed the amount of force being used against them. Uh, they have a ladder of escalating force that they follow uh, that can help them judge that uh, level of force to use. Uh, citizens generally don't even think about that, and they just respond. Uh, when I went to court on this child molester, the defense attorney asked why I didn't bring charges against any people that beat up his client. Uh, my answer back was uh, very simple. I read the suspect his Miranda rights. He decided he didn't want to talk to us and he didn't want to answer any questions and he wanted his attorney. So I didn't ask him any questions. <laughs> so the citizens did make that arrest and the defense attorney wanted to go after them in court uh, for excessive force. But he, in reality, he was trying to demonstrate that law enforcement officers were a weren't doing their jobs and they were ignoring his client as a potential victim. Uh, if the defense attorney really felt that there was a case for excessive force, he should have filed a complaint a long time before the court hearing. Now, if the suspect had complained about being beaten at the time of our arrest, uh, when we finally got there, um, we would have had to take his statements and we, that could have been potentially led to charges against citizens. Uh, I know that doesn't sound right, but uh, that's the truth of the matter. Now, here's something that could uh, happen. Uh, it's going to be really unusual if it does, but let's say you're in a situation where a law enforcement officer and that officer's engaged in something and, you know, like a wrestling match with a suspect and that officer requests your assistance. Or maybe you see him in a fight and you say, well, hey, officer, do you need some help? And he accepts your help. Guess what? Now you're acting as an agent of law enforcement, and you're required to follow all the rules the officer has to follow. <laughs> you, so if you see that officer fighting and, and you get in there and, you know, that's okay. You, but, but, uh, now you're acting as that agent. And if the officer turns around and tells you after the fight, Hey, go look at that backpack over there. Tell me what's in there. Um, you might be into, you might be violating that suspect's fourth amendment rights. 
So this is the time to be careful. Back to the general question on citizen's arrest, and there is a big downside. Let's say you do decide to take action on your own and make a citizen's arrest. You should, and should the court turn around and sign you made the wrong decision? You don't have any immunity from prosecution yourself. You could be charged with a crime. You can be sued. For example, you detain a suspect and uh, surrender them to law enforcement officers, then it's later determined that it was an unlawful arrest. You're found, and you could be found guilty of false arrest, kidnapping, assault, potentially other crimes. Well, if it wasn't bad enough, you're, now you're gonna get sued and, uh, that person, uh, you know, couldn't go to work and, you know, the family was, uh, couldn't have spent time with their uh, their mother or father or whatever and uh, their family member. You know, wow, you got to pay out for that. You know, you just caused this person to go to jail. So you're going to get sued. And I hope you got some really deep t- pockets. When a law enforcement officer arrests somebody, it, it does come with some limited liability since he is acting under the authority of a government agency. Uh, when it comes to civil liability, the government agency is normally the one that takes the big hit if there's something done wrong. Uh, and since you're making the arrest, uh, you are taking that potential big hit. If for nothing else, this is a good reason to leave the acts to arrest to the professionals. As I close out this discussion on citizens' arrest, I wanted to point something out that uh, many of you may not have thought about. If you're like me and you carry a weapon, you have a concealed carry permit, or you just open carry or whatever else, and you find yourself in a position where you have to draw that weapon, you technically have placed the person on the muzzle end of that weapon under arrest. If we shoot that person, not only we have placed them under arrest, but we have seized them. We have, we have restricted them from their free movement. And of course, uh, uh, if it's later on proven that you've done wrong, uh, well, you've made a false arrest. And of course, if you shoot and kill the individual, you're, uh, you're not only guilty of the false arrest, but you, that's probably the least of your concern at that point. So. But I'm just going to start with where I started. It's, you know, whenever possible, leave arrest to the law enforcement officers. You could save yourself from a world of trouble, even though you have the right to do it. And if you're concealed carry, you are setting yourself up to be in a citizen's arrest situation. So understand the ins and outs of this and don't be doing silly things. All right, we're sending it back to you, Jack. This is Steve Wise. Thank you. So let me just tell you, um, I thought maybe he would use it as content. He didn't, so I'll bring it up. When I forwarded this to him, I said, this makes me think of something that actually happened a few years ago. Maybe it was two years or three years ago. Some guy was at a Walmart, uh, minding his own business, doing Walmart things, and he happened to be an armed citizen carrying a gun. Another person at Walmart who should have stuck to doing his Walmart things noticed this man was carrying a gun, decided that that was illegal. You can't carry a gun in Walmart. That's illegal. Clearly, this guy is dangerous. So he tackles the guy and holds him down. And this guy, you know, doesn't really want to escalate the situation and keeps telling him, let me go. Let me, I don't want to hurt you. Let me go. Let me up. I have a, I have a license to carry. There's, I'm not breaking the law. Let me up. Well, the Walmart management is, you know, about as useful as 
tits on a boar hog here, and they don't do anything except call 911. Well, the police come, and of course, when the police get there, they draw weapons on everybody, and everybody stands up and puts their hands up like they're told to do. And our hero, and I use that with big giant sarcastic air quotes, explains the situation, and the gentleman that had been held down explains his situation. They ask him to disarm, which he does, because that's how you control the situation, and he's happy to comply. And they ask him for his ID and his permit, at which time he delivered both, at which time the officers turned around to the other individual and asked him to place his hands behind his back and arrested him for assault, uh, improper detention. I, you know, there's like five different charges the guy got hit with. And I'm sure he pled out to, you know, one of the lesser charges to save court time. But he got a free ride in a police car in a bad day. The, the issue with a citizen's arrest is that you're taking upon yourself the ability to impair somebody else's liberty without full knowledge of whether or not that's actually something you can do in that situation. And that, you know, I think there are different situations where thing, you know, things are different. If you observe somebody trying to beat somebody to death, holding them down until law enforcement gets there is one thing. If you observe somebody grab a pack of Doritos off of a shelf and tear out the door with it, and you run them down and tackle them, they might get a small citation for shoplifting. You're getting a free ride in a police car. Because that's not... So unless it's a clear-cut situation where you are really in a situation where you believe you are helping protect somebody from injury or death, I think that if you felt the need for something to be done, reporting it and providing whatever relevant information you can to law enforcement would be the way to go. I also think there's a place for going, not my business. Like I said, there's a lot of things that are illegal that I don't think should be illegal, and if I observe or have knowledge of those things, I didn't see it. I'm just saying. With that, let's go ahead and take the next one. This one is going to be on using hog lard uh, for Chef Keith Snow. Chef, take it away. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Ty from Louisiana's question about frying with hog lard. Now, Ty, you certainly can fry in hog lard, in beef tallow, and then, of course, plenty of different vegetable-based oils. Um, what you want to look for is the smoke point, and that's the point at which the oil literally starts to burn. And when it does, it becomes acrid and can really wreck the flavor of your food. Now... Um, as we've kind of progressed here, um, or maybe we think we've progressed, we've kind of gotten away from using the animal fats as a frying medium in many areas of the world, including the United States. For an example, over in England, it was always customary to, fly, to fry your fish and chips using beef tallow. And that's an excellent frying medium with a smoke point of nearly 400 degrees. Now, probably second best to that um, with animal would be hog lard. And if you can find a very clean source of properly made lard from hogs, it has a smoke point about 375 degrees and is also excellent, gives a great flavor. So I would encourage you to investigate this some more and start frying some of your food in lard and see um, see what you think. Now, peanut oil is very popular down in the south as well. That has a very high smoke point um, even higher than beef, as I understand. Um, but again, I think you're better off with the traditional animal fats myself. Now, this would uh, freak out a lot of people who just somehow equate animal fat to evil. But I think those people that kind of follow keto or paleo diet 
or trying to get more natural um, ingredients, this is a good way to go. So I hope that answers your question, and I thank all of you for calling in your questions to TSP, and I am available to answer lots more of them. That's it. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Um, I absolutely fry and lard. I just kind of wanted to point out, you know, Chef threw out some things called smoke points there. And, again, when you get to a smoke point, you get much past it specifically. You get some flavors you really don't like. So the smoke point for uh, hog lard is generally around 370 degrees. And so I guess he kind of implied it, but I just want to just directly say it. My view is that there's two different ways to look at it. If you're actually, like, pan-frying, deep-frying, so when I say that, I mean that you like the whole damn thing, you're doing like fish or something, it's completely submerged with a basket or something. Or a pan fry, like a, a shallow pan fry, would be like the old school frying pans that were like kind of deep. They were like halfway between a, a flat pan and a Dutch oven. And you have maybe a couple inches of oil in there, a couple inches of headroom. And you'd fry chicken in them and you fry one side and flip over, fry the other, but half of the thing is underneath it. If you're doing that, I, I like to stay at least 20 degrees below the smoke point of whatever I'm doing and then the right temperature for what you're doing. So no higher than, and then you come down too. And if you think about that 20-degree delta, the kind of sweet spot for frying so many things with deep frying is 325 to 350 degrees with a smoke point of 370 degrees, it puts you right in that 350-degree range. That's probably why so many things say deep-fry at 350 degrees. Not only does it work, it was the temperature people naturally ended up at when everybody and their brother and their mother and their uncle and their sister and their, co uh, their father's uh, college uncle's former roommate used pig lard. Uh, like he said, beef, uh, beef tallow, you have a smoke point up in the neighborhood of 400 degrees. And basically, I won't use it because I don't think it's a good oil to be using. Uh, but the highest smoke point oil I'm aware of is safflower oil, which is a little over 500 degrees. Chef mentioned peanut oil. That has a smoke point of about 450 degrees. I do like using peanut oil. Uh, I often use peanut oil and cut, cut butter with peanut oil to raise the smoke point. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that butter is one of the greatest things in the world to fly, fry with. And the reason we get browning and scorching and, and everything with butter is the solids. If you make clarified butter, also known as ghee, and you can look up how to do that online so I don't take too much time explaining this, uh, once you clarify butter, it has a very high smoke point of about 450 degrees. Now, I'm not going to go deep frying in clarified butter. That would be the expensive way to deep fry. Um, but it is a great uh, butter, a great fat for, for cooking with. And I, I am big on blending different fats together. Uh, lastly, let's talk a little bit about smoke points. I don't mind hitting a smoke point when you're doing like a saute. So we come up just to where that, that fat starts to smoke and we pull that temperature back. And because we know as soon as we drop in whatever we're cooking, um, it is going to drop the temperature. So that way I'm kind of at the hot. Now that's something you've got to be careful with. You can easily get too hot. You can get food that otherwise wouldn't stick sticking. But don't think because you get a wafter bit of smoke off of a, of a, a carbon steel skillet or something like that, that you've, you've done something terrible. It does not mean you've done something terrible, uh, but we definitely don't want to be hitting smoke points with a vat of fat. With that, let's take our next one here. This one is for 
Um, it was for me, but I kicked it over to J.R. Haley, a retired master sergeant from the Air Force and gun geek extraordinaire on scoping rifles. J.R., man, uh, what's up, and what are your thoughts for this gentleman in the rifles he is looking to put some glass on? Hey, TSP. J.R. here with a guest appearance answering a firearm question for Chris in Minnesota. Chris states, I'm looking for scope auctions for both a Springfield M1A Scout Squad and my Marlin 1895 and 4570. For the M1A, Chris is interested in deer hunting, range fun, and maybe some competition shooting with deer hunting going out to 200 yards. For the Marlin 1895, he wants to bring it into the 21st century and also use it in a hunting role, taking game out to 150 yards. Well, Chris, this is a good one, and I'm sure you've already surmised that from the Internet, so buckle up. Let's first begin with discussion about long eye relief scopes, or scout scopes, as they're commonly referred to today. Why do we want a long eye relief scope? This concept came about to get a scope directly over the bore of a fighting bolt-action rifle instead of the offset to the side. Having the scope directly in line with the bore improved accuracy, but the challenge was that it covered up the receiver of the top-loading bolt-action fighting rifles at the time. This was before box magazines. It made it very difficult to load and clear malfunctions, thus the desire to move the optic forward and the long eye relief scope. The Germans were really the first to bring this concept to the battlefield with the K98 rifles. As fighting rifles transitioned to semi-autos like the M1 Garand, you had the same issue. It was a top-loading rifle with no box magazine, so mounting a scope over the action gave you the same challenges. The challenge, again, was to offset the scope to the side or evolve an optic into a long eye-relief scope that allowed the forward mounting of the receiver. Your M1A Scout Squad, even though it has a box magazine and you may rarely need to clear a malfunction in the action, would really give you the most flexibility with a long eye relief scout scope. I think it's a great way to go. I would resist the urge to do a full-length Picatinny rail that blocks access to the receiver and the action of the rifle. For your stated purpose of hunting out to 200 yards, range fun, and possible competition, stick around the 1.5 to 5 power in magnification. Even though you'll be firing the 308 cartridge, which can reach out to a 1,000 yards, the long eye relief scopes don't really lend themselves to take that type of shooting. The lower 1.5-5 power is a fantastic option for 200 yards. They do make long eye relief scopes in 2 to 7. Um, that might be an option for you as well. So over to your 21st century Marlin 1895 and 4570. Fun, fun, fun. Let's cover the scope mount first. So for this, I would lean you toward the Picatinny rail that Marlin puts on their Dark Series 1895 from XS Sight Systems. It has a ghost ring in the back and a corresponding front sight. It's a full-length Picatinny uh, rail, and that's going to give you the real estate to play with things like a standard scope, a long eye relief scope, or even a red dot with a magnifier to see what really floats your boat on that rifle. And since you'll already likely be getting a long eye relief scope for the M1A integrated into the Picatinny system, you can just swing that scope over to the Marlin without the extra investment of two scopes to see if it's a setup that you like. 
with the 150-yard top end and your desire for 21st century, you might find that a red dot with a 3X or 6X swing magnifier might really meet the fun and function of that rifle. As a bonus tip, on the Marlin, it's not everybody's bag, but Midwest Industries makes a replacement aluminum M-Lock handguard for that rifle. The model number for that is 336, so you might swing over to their website and take a look at it and see if that kind of gives you some ideas or might meet some of the flexibility you're looking for. The last piece on this is scope brands. Quality glass is an investment that can be passed down through multiple generations. My father and my stepfather both have loophole VX2s that were placed on their deer rifles well before the 40 plus years I've spent on the earth. My niece will be taking a deer with one of those VX2s that's mounted on the 270 this year, and she will not be ill-equipped. Jack and I both love loophole. The other players in this market are Nikon, Burris, Bushnell, and Vortex, to name a few. A personal note on Vortex. I think they have a great marketing strategy. Um, I was on an elk hunt in New Mexico with my partner, and he was running a $900 MSRP Vortex, and I ran an equivalent MSRP Loophole VX3i. Both of our scopes had 50 millimeter objectives. At dusk, I rotated both of them to my eyes several times, and I'll tell you that I was glad that I chose the Loophole for me. Best of luck on this quest, Chris. Really fun and exciting rifles to outfit you, sir. If you want to continue this conversation, go ahead and jump on over to the blog for the show, and I'll be there to bounce ideas back and forth with. Thanks, Jack. Well, once again, uh, all roads lead to loophole. A um, couple additions here. Number one, I'm thinking maybe JR needs to not be a um, a guest member of the council. Maybe JR needs to be a the gun geek council member. This is what I like about JR. JR has a military background, even though he's Air Force, a lot of people kind of poo poo that. He's the kind of Air Force guy that actually does this shit and knows this shit. But he's also a sportsman. He, he's, he's more like me than a lot of people you would put in a position like that, in that if you want to talk about deer rifles, he knows his shit about deer rifles, and you can go tactical with him without going to the point where even a person like me starts to roll their eyes back in their head and goes, nobody needs this shit, right? Uh, so I think maybe we'll think about that after I get back from vacation. If you guys think that'd be great, you know, I'll put it this way. If I just get a few questions for him, then we'll just do it if, if he'll say yes. And something tells me he, he probably will. Uh, the next thing on loophole, I want you to think about this. He said glass is an investment. I agree with that. And the reason I kicked this to him is because I figure y'all are tired of hearing me say loophole, but I also knew he was going to tell you the same damn thing. Um, and I want you to think about an investment this way. He talked about rifles that you know his dad and uncle put glass on more than 40 years ago. It's still there. I remember being a young kid in the coal region, and I, this is before the Internet and all, and you used to get every catalog you could get your hands on because that's how you got information about products. If you wanted to know about scopes and you were trying to figure out how to save up for a scope for your gun, well, you would you know, write letters or uh, fill out things in the back of magazines or whatever, get all the, all the magazine, uh, advertisements, uh, I'm sorry, catalogs you could about scopes, and you'd sit there and go through them. That's how we learned about products back then. 
Um, I also think manufacturers were a bit more honest about their products back then, honestly, uh, which is strange because today, if you're dishonest, there's going to be somebody on YouTube saying it in five seconds. But, yeah, the, so you would sit and you'd compare specifications and price and all. And I remember sitting looking at some scopes back then as a kid going, God, I, man, I'd love to have that, but $200. And the equivalent scope to that scope today is $800, $900, 1000 But the one that you could have got for $200 in 1985 It'd still be knocking deer down today if you had it. And so it is one of the few places. And I think, again, JR and I are kind of married to loophole. If I had a tattoo, I'd probably have a loophole tattoo. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to the real high-quality glass, um, these are one of the few things that you can buy that are a consumer-level product that is not a depreciating asset. So it's definitely worth... True consideration. And remember yesterday we did a show on your guns. I am not putting a set of you know $300 piece of glass on every rifle I own because I can't afford to. But the ones I'm going to rely on, that core group, I'm going to put the best glass I can afford on it. Just some thoughts. And I do have links to uh, the scopes and the sight system for the lever gun that JR mentioned in the show notes for you today. Next up, John Pugliano is going to take a break from all your 401k questions because, boy, they've been coming lately. He wants to talk to you about market volatility and Trump doing end runs around the Fed. John, take it away. Well, hey, TSP listeners. For this week, I had a number of questions about 401ks that I was going to answer, but I'm going to postpone that till next time because I want to use some current events to illustrate what's going on in the stock market and then maybe draw some conclusions that we can make about what's going on short-term and how this is going to affect the stock market into next year. There's been a huge amount of volatility lately. In fact, over just the past five or six weeks, the NASDAQ has fallen more than 10%, and then just in the past couple days has recovered some 3% to 4%. Now, most of what's going on right now has to do with trade policy, and in particular, the kind of irrational way that President Trump has with his negotiating tactics, and in particular, his non-conventional use of Twitter, where he'll totally bypass the media, he'll work around all of the normal filters that surround a president, like a press secretary, and all the people that try and massage the message. He just goes directly out, speaks to the people, and his announcements can be abrupt and seemingly very spontaneous. If you go back just one week ago, on Thursday, May 30th, after the stock market had closed, President Trump announced that he was going to impose tariffs on imports from Mexico unless they started to do something to address the migrant problem. Well, when the market opened up on Friday morning, things went into a tailspin, and by Monday, the S&P 500 was down by over 3%. And yet, just a few days later, as I record this podcast on June 6th, The markets are back up to where they had been before the Mexican tariff announcement. So there's a couple teaching points here. Number one is, if you're a long-term investor, don't try and trade the headlines. You never know what's going to come out from day to day, and especially as long as President Trump is in office, you never know when he's going to change his mind or abruptly come out and announce something. And I think the other key lesson to learn here is not to panic when the market abruptly goes down. Neither Jack nor I believe in buy and hold. We believe that if you see a train wreck about to happen in the economy, that you should get out of the stock market. But when President Trump comes out and makes an announcement overnight, 
that may have some drastic effect on the stock market, you don't have time to sell. And so if the market has already dropped or is dropping precipitously while you're trying to get out of it, well, that's the worst time to sell. You don't want to sell on fear. It's counterintuitive, but that's actually the time you should be buying. So if you miss your opportunity to get out of the market when things are stable, try and resist the urge to get out of the market once the prices have already fallen, particularly if it's just on some news headline that everybody is likely to forget in a week or two. Now, the other point I wanted to make is President Trump's long-term strategy and where this stock market might be headed in 2020. There are a lot of commentators coming out and saying that Trump has to do a deal with the Chinese to get this trade war out of the way so that the stock market will go up in 2020 and then help him to get reelected. Now, generally, I agree with that overall scenario. I think it is Trump's plan to try and get reelected by running on a strong economy and a strong stock market. But having said that, I think a lot of people might be missing what a key Trump strategy is. It's not just talking up the stock market. Everybody knows that on any given day, Trump can move the market up or down by simply sending out a positive or a negative tweet. For example, last year when we were in a midterm election, if you remember at the beginning of 2018, Trump started being very aggressive on the Chinese about trade. Non-coincidentally, that's also the time that everything started to happen with Stormy Daniels coming out and Trump's attorney Michael Cohen getting investigated and arrested. And so I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that, but Trump may have been trying to divert headlines by really talking up the trade war with China and specifically imposing tariffs. That, along with the fears of an overheated economy and the Federal Reserve going crazy on raising interest rates, started to drive down the economy. But as we got into the summer months, Trump started to back off with a lot of his strong rhetoric on tariffs and trade wars, and he started to say that we were in dialogue with the Chinese. We were beginning to have meetings and negotiations. Tariffs were going to be postponed, and it wasn't just the Chinese. That's also the time that the Trump administration started having friendly dialogue on a bilateral basis with the Mexican government, which was putting pressure on the Canadian government to come together to restructure and renegotiate the NAFTA agreement. And also at the same time, President Trump started to back off and postpone any type of tariffs that would be imposed on European automobile imports. And so over the summer, the stock market started moving back up. And by the middle of September, the S&P 500 had hit an all-time new record high. That was just two months ahead of the midterm election. And I think President Trump was feeling pretty well until a month out from the election on October 3rd, when the chairman of the Federal Reserve came out and said that interest rates were a long way from neutral. And that sent a message to the stock market that the Federal Reserve was going to keep raising rates. And from October 3rd until Christmas Eve, December 24th, the market had dropped nearly 20%. That precipitous fall started one month just before the midterm elections. And I'm not saying that that was planned or orchestrated or that it even necessarily had an impact on the Republicans losing the House of Representatives. But I think what it did do was that it showed President Trump that just his tweets and just his happy talk are not enough to sustain the stock market rally ahead of an election. What he needs more than anything is a stable, growing economy. And he knows he can achieve that with lower interest rates because that spurs consumer spending and also business investment. And after what he's seen the Federal Reserve do last October, just before the midterm elections, where they talked up interest rates, Trump may not have had much confidence in the Federal Reserve to begin with, but definitely after that October surprise, I think it was pretty apparent that he knew that he couldn't trust them to help him in 2020. 
And just as Trump is using Twitter to go around the mainstream media to talk directly to the American people, I think he's found a way around the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates by continually interjecting a lot of political instability, which is putting a great amount of uncertainty in the stock market and causing the market to not only go down, but also causing analysts to revise their projections down and to have muted growth prospects for the future. So that's not only encouraging the Federal Reserve to back off on interest rates, but also at the same time as investors move out of more risky stocks, they're moving into safer haven government bonds, which is further driving down the interest rates. And so right now, interest rates are down one full percentage point from where they were in December. And the 10-year Treasury is today about exactly where it was when Trump got elected. And so as we move into next year's presidential election, I think Trump is counting on those lower interest rates to keep spurring the economy throughout next year. And then during the summer months of 2020, he'll again start with a happy talk, making deals with our allies and with our trading partners. And then that way, when he gets into the fall with the presidential election, he'll not only have his happy tweets promoting the stock market, but the U.S. economy will also have had about 18 months of very friendly, low interest rate policy to help spur the economy along as well. And of course, if he can get a deal with the Democrats on a big infrastructure spending project, well, that's just icing on the cake. Well, hey, I don't know if it's going to happen that way. But I think there is more of a method to Trump's madness than what most people give him credit for. And so we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Well, hey, thanks for listening. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Uh, Definitely good stuff from John. And I I don't know if we're the only ones saying it. I just think there's a variety of things that um, Trump could fix that he hasn't fixed. A variety of deals that could be made, some of them with, over trade and some of them over other things. And I'm just going to say a little spiritodominus here. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these things are being purposely deferred, purposely deferred until the summer of 2020 into the early fall of 2020. And the reason is Trump is a lot of things, but he's not stupid. I know he sounds stupid. You don't get to be a billionaire and president of the United States if you're actually stupid. You just don't. Um, He sounds stupid because it works for him, and on some levels he is an intellectual dolt, but he's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. And one thing that you know about Trump if you've studied his, his history is he knows that people have short memories. And... If you would look at, let's say, Bush Bush the first president, when Desert Storm ended, if the election had been that year, um, Bush wouldn't have just won. He would have won in a landslide that that would have been uh, like Reagan's second election. It would have been that bad. Just a few years later, no one cares about that. They care about no new taxes being a lie and the economy being in a recession. And so the things that happen right up around an election have more influence on it, whether good nor bad, than the things that happened two or three years before an election. And that's another lesson from the Reagan era. Just going to say, I think there's some, some gaming afoot going on. Next up, we've got a segment from old Doc Bones on dealing with wounds and various methods of closing wounds, and should those wounds be closed in the first place. Hi, Joe MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. 
I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Paul, who writes, Can you explain when stitches are and are not necessary, and what are some tips for dressing a deep wound that may not require stitches? Recently, I sliced the edge of my finger open. It looked pretty deep and bled quite a bit. My wife was concerned that we would have to go to the emergency room. I got the bleeding to stop and decided not to go, but this got me thinking, is there a good way to tell if a deep wound can be taken care of at home, and are there any other concerns to keep in mind, such as tetanus or other infections or diseases? Thanks for the information, Paul. Paul, when a laceration occurs, our body's natural armor is breached and bacteria get a free ride to the rest of our body. Therefore, it only makes common sense that we want to close that breach to speed healing and lock out infection. There is controversy, though, as to whether or not to close a wound. When and why would you choose to do so, and what method should you use? A laceration may be closed either by sutures, staples, tapes, or medical superglues, such as Dermabond or even industrial superglue. After rendering first aid, which includes the removal of any foreign objects, hemostasis, otherwise known as bleeding control, irrigation, and antiseptic application, you're going to have to make a decision. To paraphrase Hamlet, to close or not to close, that is the question. What are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? Your goals are simple. You close wounds to repair the defect in your body's armor, to eliminate dead space that might allow bacteria or other infective agents to accumulate, and to promote healing. A well-approximated wound also has less scarring. It sounds as if all wounds should be closed, right? Unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good, and could possibly put your patient's life at risk. Take the case of a young lady who injured herself some years ago in a zip line accident. She was taken to the local emergency room where 22 staples were needed to close a large laceration on her thigh. Unfortunately, the wound had dangerous bacteria in it and caused a serious infection which spread throughout the body. She eventually required multiple amputations. We learned from this an important lesson, namely that the decision to close a wound is not automatic but involves several considerations. The most important consideration is whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. Most wounds you'll encounter in an off-grid setting are going to be dirty. If you try to close that kind of wound, such as, a, let's say, a gunshot wound, you have sequestered bacteria and dirt in your body. And within a short period of time, the, the wound becomes infected and will appear red, swollen, and hot. An abscess may form a collection of pus, and the infection may eventually spread to the bloodstream, a condition known as septicemia, and that is possibly life-threatening. Can you clean a wound to the extent that you're sure there isn't any debris or bacteria? At home with antiseptics, I think it's possible. Off the grid, I'm not so sure. The bigger the wound, the harder it is to say that you've cleaned it to the point that you can close it. Leaving the wound open will allow you to clean the inside frequently and observe the healing process. That also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. The scar isn't as pretty, but it's the safest option in a lot of cases. Many might consider what's called a delayed closure, where you keep it clean and dressed for a couple of days to see if signs of infection appear. If not, some will close it on the second or third day. Other considerations when deciding whether or not to close a wound are whether it's a simple laceration, a straight thin cut on the skin, or whether it's an avulsion where areas of skin are torn or flaps are hanging out. If the edges of the skin are so far apart that they cannot be stitched together without undue pressure, well, the wound should be left open. 
If the wound has been open for more than eight hours, it should be left open. Even the air has bacteria, and there's a good chance that they have already colonized the injury. Let's say that you're certain the wound is clean. It's less than, let's say, eight hours old. Here are some factors that would suggest that closure is appropriate. The laceration is long or deep. The exception would be a puncture wound from an animal bite. These bites are loaded with bacteria and should be kept open in austere settings. When it comes to infection, cat bites are worse than dog bites and dog bites are worse than snake bites. If the wound goes deeper than the skin, that's an indication that it needs to be looked at in the ER and probably closed if it's clean enough. If the wound is over a joint, that is a good reason to close a wound. A moving part such as the knee is constantly going to stress a wound and prevent it from closing in by itself. If the wound gapes open loosely, that suggests that it can be closed without undue pressure on the skin. Now, Paul, you mentioned tetanus. Tetanus is a bacteria that lives in the soil and can certainly contaminate wounds. That old rusty nail comes to mind. Tetanus has neurotoxins called tetanospasmin, and that causes muscle spasms like lockjaw and worse. In normal times, there's a shot you can take to prevent this. It's usually given in the emergency room after an injury. If a wound is left open, packing it with a moist, not soaking wet, sterile dressing will help the growth of new cells to fill in the wound. That's a process called granulation. Cover the moist dressing at the level of the skin with a dry one and then secure it in place. That's the old wet-to-dry dressing. Drains consisting of thin lengths of latex, nitrile, or even gauze might be placed into a questionable wound that you're leaving open. Penrose drains are, that's P-E-N-R-O-S-E, are an inexpensive version of the fancy drains used in operating rooms today. Drains have a tendency to leak, so always place a dressing over the exposed area. It can be sort of messy. Many injuries that require closure and some that don't should be treated with antibiotics in oral or topical form to decrease the chances of infection. Natural substances with antibiotic properties such as garlic or raw unprocessed honey may be used in survival scenarios. There's a lot more to it than this, so consider a copy of my Survival Medicine Handbook where I go into how to deal with open wounds and how to close wounds in detail. One quick note about a method of closure that I'm being asked about a lot, the zip stitch. This is a plastic, usually one and a half or two inch apparatus that quickly closes wounds. It accomplishes that goal very well, but you should know that it's more important to have the good judgment as to when a wound should be closed and when it shouldn't. Also, that one and a half inch item is only for small lacerations and costs at least 30 bucks a pop. It would take more than one to close a large wound. In normal times, it's better to go to the ER where they have the resources to use fancy closures like zip stitch and other things. It's not an alternative, in my opinion, to getting checked out by a medical professional. By the way, our staple kits have 35 staples each and go for much less and deal with a much larger wound. Our suture kits are also cheaper as well, and they would be better for jagged lacerations than a zip stitch. That's not just our staple in the suture kits, by the way, but anybody's. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And experience the joy you get from helping the elderly, me that is, by following Dr. Bones on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at DR Bones Nurse Amy Channel, Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page, and subscribing to our website feed at doomandbloom.net. Thanks again.
I'm not usually one to critique an MD, especially a close personal friend, and I'm not really doing that. I just want to bring something up because he said, uh, I believe cat is worse than dog from infection and dog is worse than snake. Uh, something could be true and then also could lead somebody to the wrong conclusion at the same time. As you folks know uh, that have listened a long time, I am something of a amateur herpetologist. I have been working with and around reptiles since I was a little bitty kid. I even actually did a volunteer summer program working in the herpetology department at the Philadelphia Zoo uh, between my junior and senior year in high school. Uh, so I'm not someone that's just like, I had some pet snakes, man, and I read some books. Like I have been a serious student of this for a very long time. You can, from non-venomous snakes, have some fairly serious infectious reactions chief among the snakes that can do this to you is a snake that is almost impossible to get bitten by unless you have it as a pet and you're feeding it and you get what's called an SFE what is an SFE? stupid feeding error where you have done something wrong during the feeding of the animal and it bites you And it becomes convinced for one reason or another that your finger, your hand, your thumb is a mouse or a toad or something like that. That is the, the American hognose snake. The reason I say it is almost impossible to get these animals to bite you otherwise is I have caught complete, and this is a fun thing to do with them, by the way. There's lots of YouTube videos of it. Uh, the the, the uh, American hognose snake will get um, real angry with you if you mess with it. It will act like a rat snake and it will rattle its tail and it will hiss and it will bite at you except usually it doesn't even actually open its mouth and then if you continue to provoke this little critter uh, it will actually rise up and flatten its head and hood like a cobra and begin to lunge at you like a cobra which it will also not bite you I mean you can literally pick these things up and stick your finger at their face and they won't do it And then, if that fails, it's like, oh, crap, this giant thing's going to eat me. It doesn't believe my bluff. And it will actually flip over on its back and open its mouth and open its cloacula, which is its butt, basically, and emit a very foul stench and pretend to be dead. And if you back away from it, I mean, this is so much like a possum, it's crazy. You'll, if you wait a little while, you'll see it like kind of turn its head over. And it'll start to roll its body like they're cute, honestly. And like it's going to crawl away. And then when you, you come walking back up to it, it just like flips back over and acts like it's dead again. Um, exactly like a possum, right? So that particular snake can give you an infection. Because what I'm about to say is going to be a little counter to what Bones said. Most non-venomous snakes you will have no infection from whatsoever. The hognose... Uh, is a snake that has some fairly large teeth. They're sort of like fangs, but they're not fangs. They're not hollow. They don't inject venom. But they do have a saliva with a significant concentration of bacterium in it. And if you get an SFE from one, it, it looks like it's a semi-venomous snake that made you swell up, but it's actually an infection. And it's something you will recover from, but it can be pretty gnarly. Uh, the non-venomous snakes in the United States that we have are not large enough to do enough damage with the wounds that they provide, nor do they tend to chew uh, significantly to generally cause an infection. Some of your larger water snakes, your neurotic species, 
Um, they're pretty big snakes, the biggest ones, and they have fairly long teeth because anything that's a piscivore, meaning it eats fish, has to have long, or, or slimy frogs, has to have long teeth to actually hold on to it. So, yeah, if you go grabbing a, a seven-foot Nerodia green or diamondback water snake out of the water and it starts chewing on you and you let it, you might get an infection. Where the risk of infection is significant are your larger snakes, primarily exotic snakes kept in the pet trade, like boas and pythons, simply because the laceration is significant. When a 13-foot Burmese python lays into you, um, it can be something that you might be going to the ER to get stitches for. So it is, is these larger snakes, because there's more saliva in their mouths and because of the wound itself, and because they can push things into your body that were just there on your skin... Uh, about the only other snake in the United States other than some of the uh, water snakes, um, if they're big enough and if you allow it to happen, that's a significantly large enough snake in North America to, uh, to lacerate you sufficiently to, to have concern would be the indigo snake, which is highly endangered. Um, it requires a $200 permit to keep one, even if you can prove it was captive bred, and that's the only thing you keep. You cannot take them from the wild. And I just wanted to throw this in there because it is another example of the government thinking that it's helping, but it's not. Um, the indigo snake uh, is, is a form of Kribo, and there actually are several different species of Kribo from South America that you can buy on the open market. They are widely bred and very inexpensive. Uh, indigo snakes will cost you over a thousand bucks plus the permit. And it's because they're protected. The reason they're protected is they're one of the few snakes in the United States that are both denural and on the intelligence level of something like uh, some of the cobra species, even though they're non-venomous. So these snakes had a reputation, and several early herpetologists, including Carl Caulfield, who is kind of like my uh, mentor through time, um, wrote little notes about them in various books about snakes saying things like that they would actually bond with keepers and follow them, which is to some degree true. This caused them to be incredibly popular, and they were over-collected from the wild at a time when no one really knew how to breed in captivity and pushed to the edge of extinction. The, the, the populations have not come back significantly. There are quite a few of them in captivity, and if the United States government would get out of the way and simply say that anybody that wants to can keep these things and there was no permits involved, the breeding would go up very, very quickly on them, and they would become as common in the pet trade as something like your random everyday corn snake. Once that happened, there would be sufficient animals to repopulate them into the wild. And why would this be important, even though we started off on wound closure? Because indigo snakes are a snake predator. They are not a king snake as in the king snake family, but in the tradition of calling things king snakes, they are a king snake. They kill and eat other snakes. They are very large critters, and they chomp down on things like cobberheads and rattlesnakes. This was one of the keystone species that kept venomous snakes in, in, in check in our country, and it has all been but eliminated. It also does make a very good pet. If you would like one, you can look at, for things like the yellow-tailed Kribo out of it's C-R-I-B-O, South America, which essentially is the same snake in a different color pattern, but nowhere near as beautiful as the indigo. The indigo, though, another thing that made it a very popular pet is it was a lot like the hognose in that it was very reluctant to bite. I'm just going to say that his South American relatives do not share the same uh, disposition. Uh, they can 
make relatively good pets, but they will bite and they can open you up pretty good. Long addendum, but I just thought it was interesting anyway. Um, with that, let's hear from uh, Doc Kelly on grain-free dog food. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Carl in South Carolina. Can you give your opinion on the recent FDA warning regarding grain-free and boutique diets causing canine dilated cardiomyopathy? And he gives the link for the FDA.gov um, website for that. And says, I've read over some of the actual study data behind this and see a lot of inferred results, but very little scientific evidence at this stage. I do currently feed my dog with a food containing legumes and potatoes as a significant, significant ingredient, and I'm not sure if I should make a change based on this current data. Thank you for your opinion. So this is a great question, and the reason it's difficult to assess the scientific info at this point is due to the fact that it hasn't all been sorted out. And unfortunately, no one has all the answers on it yet. Now, as a short synopsis for those that haven't read the article or the website from the government, there is a concern in veterinary medicine that we are seeing an increase in dogs affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, which causes heart failure in dogs that are not just on grain-free diets, but also these diets considered boutique and exotic meat diets, or what they're calling the BEG diets. Now, some of the suspicion is concerning these alternative starch sources in the diet, such as legumes and root vegetables. Now, this increase has been especially noted for golden retrievers, possibly because they are more susceptible to heart damage when their tarring levels are low. And some of the suspicion is that this whole problem is due somehow to low tarring. And tarring is a known cause of dilated cardiomyopathy, but it was not involved, it wasn't low in all of the affected dogs. So there's a real big question mark here. And they were seeing this, it's the FDA released it because a lot of the cardiology specialists were seeing these sorts of trends that they were noticing it. And so there's research being done out at UC Davis and other um, veterinary hospitals or research hospitals to try and figure out exactly what's going on with it. And these diets, they'll often test with acceptable taurine levels and the dogs should be able to synthesize their own taurine, unlike cats. But one possibility is some combo of these ingredients is stopping the dogs from absorbing or synthesizing this taurine properly. And unfortunately, just adding taurine to the diet as an extra supplement doesn't solve the problem for all dogs. So while this is a developing issue, I mean, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and everything with it. I have been warning patients to steer clear of diets that fall in this big category. There's no benefit to a grain-free diet for most dogs. And to me, if there are other alternatives that are not implicated in heart failure, I'm going to go with those options at this point. You know, for me, it's just better to be on the conservative side for it. And if there's a suspicion that it could be causing a problem when there's so many other options that aren't implicated, that's where I would go at this point. Now, owners always ask what they should feed, and this can be a tricky question. You know, barring any sort of medical issues that need some sort of special diet, just for your average dog living his life, um, the food, things that you recommend, people try to go online and find rankings and lists but they're really not accurate. Many try to rank off ingredient lists, which at first glance, would this would seem reasonable. You'd think, why can't you just look at that? But they tend to rank names such as byproduct as automatically bad when byproduct doesn't mean stuff like hooves and feathers. It's typically organ meat. It's just the byproducts for things that most U.S. consumers aren't interested in eating, even though plenty of people all over the world eat them and there's nothing really wrong with it other than cultural preference. 
But again, even this term is confusing since it's impossible to tell exactly what's included in the byproducts. It's like someone saying that they'll offer you a steak for dinner, and you want to know: Are we talking about Golden Corral steak or a steak down at Lonesome Dove in downtown Fort Worth? Same name, big difference. And the frustrating part for all of us, veterinarians included, is that you can't tell the difference from a label. You, if it just says the byproducts, you actually have to call the company and find out information on it. So there are some questions, and the World Small Animal Veterinary Association has put together that you can ask about a food from the company to determine if it's a good one. And all of this is available on their website as well. And if you call a reputable pet food company and request this info, they should be able to give it to you. So the first is, do you employ a full-time qualified nutritionist? So appropriate qualifications for this are either a PhD in animal nutrition or board certification by the American College of Veterinary Nutrition. And who formulates your foods and what are his or her credentials? You know, these are important things to ask because nutritional inadequacies in food. In an animal, their lifespan is so much shorter than ours that any sort of imbalance in that is going to be exacerbated and is going to come out a lot faster than you would see it in like humans, for example. You know, if you eat a diet that's improperly balanced in micronutrients, yeah, over 20 years you may start to see some problems, but it's not going to show up in as fast a span of time as you would see it in these animals. So it makes it it's actually harder trying to balance out their foods. Now, the other questions are: Are your diets tested using AFCO feeding trials, or by formulation to meet an AFCO nutrient profile?、Um, so, are they doing if it's just made by formulation? Are they doing it off the formulation like a recipe, or are they actually analyzing that finished product to see how closely it matches? You know, where are the foods produced and manufactured? What specific quality control measures do you use to assure the consistency and quality of the ingredients and the end product? Um, we provide a complete nutrient analysis for the dog or cat food in question, and it's like, can they provide an average, typical analysis, not just the guaranteed analysis, which is that min, minimums and maximums and stuff that you'd see on the bag? You want to know, like, what if they took the food and averaged out, like, what was the protein and what was the phosphorus, and get an exact number for that? And it should ideally be given on an energy basis. So you'd want to see like grams per 100 kilocals, kilocalories, and instead of just like dry matter basis or something, because you want to see different foods have different densities, and so you want to see that what is it per kilocal that the dog's eating. And you should be able to find out the average. You know, what is the caloric value per gram, can, or cup of the food? What kind of product research has been conducted? You know, are they publishing studies in peer-reviewed journals? So, if they cannot or will not provide any information on research for it, you know, I'd be cautious about it. Um, in some countries, the AFCO adequacy statement is included on the label. So the statement confirms, you know, three things: whether the diet's complete and balanced, and all over-the-counter foods should be complete and balanced. You know, occasionally, like you might see something that says for intermittent or supplemental use only, and you may see things like that with some of the veterinary therapeutic diets because, like, if you have an animal that's in kidney failure, they can't process all the same stuff and can't have things. But that diet that you'd feed the kidney animal is not suitable to use for your average dog, like all the time. It's not going to meet all their requirements. And if the dog, if the food is complete and balanced, like what life stage is it intended for? You know, because they have different needs for growth and reproduction and maintenance and that sort of thing.、Um, if the food is complete and balanced, how did the company determine this? So, like, did they do feeding trials? Did they just formulate it off of a recipe or then retest the product and make sure that it met that standard? 
Food trials can be helpful. They are not. They aren't always all the end all be all. I mean, they are for a limited span of time. So it's not like for the majority of these things, like you have a studies done for each food where the, they did it for the entire lifespan of the animal. So they can be helpful, but you know they too are you know have their limitations. So if you don't want to go calling all the food companies and all that, my short answer is to stick to the middle to high range foods from the main companies, things like Hills, Royal Canin, Purina, and stuff like that, and choose one that is not grain free, and you should be okay.、Um, bear in mind that you know watching for recalls on all these. Any food that you're feeding. Now, while recalls can happen with any of the foods,、um, it's also a sign that for a lot of the companies that they're actually testing them to know if a recall is needed. So I don't automatically see it as a bad thing. I see it as that they're watching to make sure that what they're producing actually fits with it. And, you know, and one of the big things too is making sure that these companies that there is some research going into what they're doing with the foods because. There is it is so marketing heavy with all of these things, and they use so many terms like food, human food grade and stuff, which is not an actual term. That doesn't mean anything, and so it's, there's a lot. And they try to, I mean, all it's just marketing. They try to do it for all foods, you know, that they just tug at the people and the heartstrings, and so you know, trying to life source bits and all this stuff. But like, it doesn't really matter. You really have to like look and see: Are they trying to do research behind it and see if it will be a good food? But hopefully that. Help to clear it a little bit,、um, but if you have any other questions, please send them my way. And hope everyone has a great week. Thanks, Jack. Okay, my my one addendum here, and I, this is something I know that a lot of you probably have strong feelings on, and maybe are very angry or at least a little bit perturbed at Doc Kelly now because you think she's steering people away from a more natural way of feeding canines. There is a big difference between a grain-free dog food and a、uh, meat. An animal diet for a dog.、Um, what these grain-free dog foods generally are doing is taking、uh, other vegetable proteins and then adding in、um, uh, different different forms of of, of、uh, vegetative filler. So instead of using things like wheat or barley or corn, they're using things like chickpea or other legumes.、Um, Dogs do not, in nature, eat corn, but they also, in nature, do not eat peas. They do not eat、uh, beans. They do not eat any of those things. And some of those things may have some things that might be quite bad from an inflammation standpoint, which to me has always been the underrated. Component to heart disease in the United States. Even in human beings, I think that as we get older, we get into a condition called pernicious anemia. This is where our bodies are incapable, no matter how much we consume of it, absorbing B12. This is why you give old people a B12 shot, and they kind of come back around, and they're all happy. They call it a happy shot. Well, when we go with prolonged pernicious anemia, which again is a deficiency in vitamin B12. Uh, there is an amino acid called homocysteine that runs wild in our systems, and it scores and damages the inside of our arteries. And when that happens,、uh, the cholesterol—that's actually a very beneficial thing that you need to survive—that's flowing through your body、uh, has something to attach itself to. So, if you think about if you were like trying to get out of a, a tank, a swimming tank, let's say, and it had a slimy liner, and you were five feet from the surface. You would have a very hard time getting from an, a ledge, pulling yourself up that wall. 
If you tried to get any kind of traction, but if that wall were uh, heavily textured, where there was texture in it big enough to grab your fingers into, you could grab on and pull yourself up. It's kind of like that. So I believe some of these grain-free dog foods maybe this is a speculation, maybe the reason they have had these heart conditions is due to things like scarring of the arteries, due to reactions uh, from possible toxic amino acids or other things, or systemic inflammation. A dog, again, though, really if you think about where dogs come from and what wild canines are, should be eating rats and rabbits and small birds and bird's eggs and uh, babies of small things like rabbits and what have you. And that includes hair and bone and brain and stomach and stomach contents and organs and all of that stuff. So when we try to rectify the problem that the dog is eating something that's not really for canines as in uh, a, a typical dog food, by feeding it a all-meat diet. But then we start feeding it, you know, what we eat, absent the other things that we eat, then it's not getting bone marrow. It's, it's not getting cartilage. It's not getting kidney. It's not getting small intestine. It's not getting things in that live critter that it killed that would make us sick, that it doesn't make the dog sick. It's not getting bone. And so... I have never done this, but it would be interesting to me to see somebody um, do a study on what would happen if dogs were fed the same diet I used to feed my snakes in large part, uh, rats and rabbits. I know Nick Ferguson feeds uh, large quantities of rabbits to his uh, guardian dogs, pulls them right out of the uh, hutch and does a cervical dislocation and throws them the whole rabbit. And his dogs are incredibly healthy. My dogs eat a, a high-quality premium, over you know, typical dog food. Uh, not a grain free, but they get a lot of uh, byproduct from uh, culling. Uh, anything that they can have that we're not going to eat, they get, and they eat a lot of raw eggs. And my dogs are incredibly healthy from that. So just my little add-on there. Uh, let's talk real quick. I wanted to answer a question here on aquaponics. This is from Justin. Justin says, uh, bottom line up front, should I use free IBC tanks that previously contained chemicals in them? And should I put a sump pump in? Sump pump in. Uh, sump tank in. Jeez. Uh, details. A friend of mine gave me two free IBC tanks. They used to contain aluminum sulfate in 48% concentration. Uh, according to the labels on them, the construction company he worked for was using them with water uh, on job sites in uh, hot Florida sun. They were used on job site for a few years. Have been sitting empty on my property for a few months. Do you think it would be okay to use them as my fish tanks and aquaponics system? I could pressure wash them out or clean and rinse them as needed. Do I need a sump tank? I'd like to build a big system. I know fish are a byproduct, but I really like to eat fish. If they are okay, would it make sense to use both of them as fish tanks? Or would I be better cutting one of them up and using as a sump? Uh, Rob Bob seems to use a sump in his systems, but I don't really think recalling seeing one of your systems. Thanks for all you do, Justin. Justin, the primary reason you don't see what you're thinking of as a sump, which is an independent, separate, lower tank in my systems, is because I can't dig a hole worth a damn here. And because of that, I am in many instances forced to have my system levels higher than I would like. So let's just, let's just start with the first thing. Can you use these IBCs? And my answer to the chagrin of many people here is going to be, I don't see why not. HTPE is not really big on absorbing a lot of stuff. 
and what it can absorb, it's pretty big on shedding pretty fast. So I would think right now if you just hose the damn things out and use them, you would probably be fine. However, we don't really know what the construction people did with them. They said they just used water in them. Did they? We're not sure. I would give them a good pressure washing. Uh, I would drain them. And I would set them out in the sun to dry out, and then I would go do whatever you're going to do with them. Let's talk about sumps, and let's 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 toss out the idea of needing to cut one of these to turn it into a sump. Obviously, we're going to have to cut it anyway to in some some way, shape, or form uh, in order to uh, make it into a fish tank. I prefer, if possible, depending on the design of the system, to cut the top off of the IBC leaving it almost completely intact, as in the curvature that comes over the top, we go inside about an inch, so there's a lip, there's more structural integrity that way, and especially when we leave the cage intact, and then we drill a hole and we take a, a, a skill saw or a jigsaw, and we, just, we cut basically the top off. Now we have a, 300, a 270 to 330-gallon uh, fish tank. With, you know, freeboard, if it's 330, we're going to probably be holding about 310, 315 gallons of water in it when it's at its fullest. So we leave some room for freeboard. Okay. With that, we need, if we're going to put two of those, and let's just say we're going to be holding 600 gallons of water, we need a lot of grow bed. Okay? We need a lot of either flow-through wicking beds or deep water um, you know, rafting beds or ebb and flow beds. And we really want, with a small-scale system, to have at least, I would say, two ebb and flow beds in this system. The cheapest solution for this would be to do the chop method made famous by Mary, Mary Hallam, where maybe we take the top 12 inches off the way they conventionally do, instead of the way I just said, We flip them over, and those become our ebb and flow beds. A lot of people do that because we already have the IBC. Why not? It requires a little bit of work on the caging to make it work, but it works well, and now we're going to drop the total gallons of water down. What this does, though, is make a very easy system to keep at a manageable height. The height of an IBC is about 45 inches. If that becomes the system level of our water, if we don't drop that into the ground somehow or lower it somehow, then what happens is any beds that flow back into there start at 45 inches. And if we use, let's say, a 20-inch deep, 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank as an ebb and flow bed, now we're somewhere around 65 inches, close to, what, five foot five? Right? Is that right? Yeah. At where our plants are started. So if we even have something like a two-foot pepper plant, the top of that pepper plant is up at seven foot five. And it just makes it kind of difficult to create an environment where water moves back and forth. We put ours as low as we could. We dealt with it the way we could. And then I built a second system that's built on something like a 300-gallon Rubbermaid, which is holds the same amount of water, but it's only two foot high. And then put that in the ground 11 inches, and all of a sudden I, I have something that's a lot more manageable in that second system. So, one of the ways we can get around this, and this is really one of, not the only, but one of the reasons to do a sump is, if we took your two tanks, and even if we did what I originally said, and you used other things to make your ebb and flow beds and your rafting beds, we just cut the tops off, maybe we drop them uh, 10 inches into the ground, uh, just a 10-inch square and just drop them down a level. Now we're down at 35 inches. 
a little bit easier to work on there. But even if we're not dropping stuff straight into them, what we can do now is we can set up our ebb and flow beds or our rafting beds independent of those IBCs. And we can pump water out of the IBCs into the system, into the, the ebb and flow beds and into the rafting beds. Those can overflow into the sump, and then the sump pumps water back into the IBCs, which we would plumb common at the same level so that it didn't matter which side we brought that water into, uh, it, would, it would be good. It would, they will equal themselves out. This is a more complex system. It does aid somewhat in filtering solids, and it lowers the overall height of the system. That is kind of the, the advantage. The disadvantage is we now need to run two pumps, and we have something akin to a catastrophic failure if either of them fail. Right Now, <laughs> that, that's a problem, especially if it's the sump pump that fails. Because the pump in our IBCs, we're going to really lower the level before we trigger that float valve, and now we've got no flow and we've got less water. If we've done something clever, like we've put in a float valve, then we're just going to have overflowing from the sump. Hopefully we were smart and we put our float valve in at the upper level, not down in the sump. So I want you to start thinking about the sump, not like do you need it or not, How will it help you in your design of the overall system with lowering the height of the system? After burying some IBC stuff, I would say that I don't want to put IBCs in the ground more than about a foot to a foot and a half because if they do get drained, the earth can like cave them in pretty easily. While they're full, they're pretty damn stable. So I would look at, again, and I would go 14-ish inches into the ground. Uh, with a full intact IBC with the rest of it above board, uh, definitely running a sump pump, and then, then design from there. I don't think it's probably the best idea for you to use your IBCs as a sump if you decide you want a lower sump. I would tell you that you would probably be better off doing something like picking up something in the neighborhood of, of one of the 150 to 300-gallon Rubbermaid structural foam-insulated tanks. They have a lot more resiliency if you're going to bury them as far as resisting collapse. And you want to make sure, you got to think of your sump as your primary battery, that that thing can handle the flooding in of water and have enough time for that pump to get that water back to your IBCs. But if we can lower our IBCs, this is where I think maybe the simplest design is. This is why Murray Hallam, who's one of the best-known aquaponics guys out there, is a big fan of what he calls the CHOP system, where we're cutting the top off the IBCs and flipping them over. If we can lower that IBC to 35 inches, but then we're taking the IBC itself, and we're going to take, let's say, maybe 14 of those 45 inches and cut that off and flip that over and set our, our caging up, so that we have now two huge ebb and flow beds. Two, basically, they're about four foot by four foot in that range, like three and a half by three and a half, something like that. Um, we have no added expense, and we now have about a 32-inch high system. In other words, the, the top of those ebb and flow beds is 32 inches. Now we can, add as, we can, we can grow that system as much as we want, And as long as we're, we're using tanks that are in the neighborhood of 
10 to 14 inches, we're going to stick to that under 35-inch height, which is under 3 feet, which is a really nice working height. Even if we throw something in there like a, a 20-inch, I think we're still at like, what, 35, 45 inches, right? And we can still work with that. If we have elevation to play with, then obviously we want to put wherever, wherever our, our low wherever our water tanks are, we want them to be in the lowest part of the system. Now we can really play with some things where we just go, you know, if you have a little bit of slope, you, you've got a lot to gain. Now let's talk about sump. Every system has a sump. The question is, does it have a dedicated sump? The sump in any aquaponic system or any system that would be analogous to this is simply the lowest point in the system. That's all that it is. So something's acting as a sump. In my system, what's acting as a sump is a solid separator in one system, and the other, the water tank itself, is the sump. So hopefully that helps you, and I don't want to go into exactly how to build it because, well, I've done whole shows on aquaponics, and there's entire YouTube channels on aquaponics, and Rob Bob, I will say this about him, we don't do everything the same way, but if you do things the way Rob says to do them, they will work for you. He's much more of an aquaponics guy than I am. He it's his thing. He does that and you know that's all he does all time all day long. With that we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you if you like this show and you want to help us, best thing you can do, become a member. Don't do it today. Don't become a member today. Don't become a member this weekend. Tune in Monday. Check the blog on Monday. I'm going to run a sale because I'm going on vacation, so I'm going to leave you guys a sale while I'm on vacation. Uh, I will be here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week, but I'm going to run a sale all next week, and it's going to be a really good deal. And if you join my members' brigade today or tomorrow or Sunday, then you'll be mad at me. So don't do it. Don't join the MSB until at least Monday. But then join the MSB if you're not a member. All right, next up, remember you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com to help support the work that we do. No matter what you buy, again, that website is tspaz.com, tspaz.com. My item of the day reviewed for you today is Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. Uh, I have used this on a lot of things. The most uh, significant thing was a few years ago, I did some severe straining and tearing to my MCL and LCL to the point where I could not bear any weight. I could not move my leg without excruciating pain. Um, this was something I was told was going to require surgery. I am, you know, you only cut me if I have to be cut kind of guy. And I went on this stuff for about 45 days and experienced a full recovery. I can't say it treats or cures illnesses or diseases because I'm not a doctor and I'm not allowed to, but I'm just telling you what it did for me. Um, I'll tell you another thing that I saw this do. My daughter-in-law had incredibly uh, nasty rash due to post-pregnancy hormones. She was so uncomfortable, she was almost in tears with it. I suggested that they use this on one small area to test it. The rash went away almost instantly. So they used it everywhere, and at 15 minutes later, she was happy. I have heard from dozens and dozens of you guys uh, that have used this for various things. Uh, and everybody's been happy. I have sold, I looked up today, uh, my total sales on this is over a thousand units of this. I have sold over like three years. A thousand tubs of this stuff. I have had no one tell me this stuff doesn't work. Not one person. Um, which is kind of surprising to me because I would have thought somebody tried to cure cancer with it or, you know, uh, put it on, a, you know, I don't know, a, 
uh, something that Comfrey doesn't help with or something and not understood it. But I haven't had anybody complain about it. Um, there is one thing that fits in with uh, Doc Bones' segment on this, uh, or, or today with this, and that is the one thing you should never do with any Comfrey product is put it on a wound uh, that you do not want closed. Because Comfrey causes uh, dermal regeneration so quickly that it will close a wound that shouldn't be closed. So deep wounds, this is not what it's for. Bruises, strains, sprains, rashes, insect bites, stuff like that. It, it, it tends to, to, to work really well for twisted ankles, bruised ribs, abrasion scrapes, shallow wounds. It's really good at causing them to heal quickly. Um, but deep wounds, comfrey products should not be used on. Um, last thing is, this stuff says to refrigerate after opening. I don't. You can if you want to. The one thing is it is made with beeswax. So if you do that, it's going to get very hard. So you, you want to take it out quite a bit before you're ready to use it if you, you're using it regularly on something. Uh, to me, I don't see any reason to refrigerate it. It doesn't smell the greatest, and I imagine that's why they tell you to do that. But there's nothing in I read all the ingredients. There's nothing in there. It's going to go bad. You don't eat it. Please don't eat it. But do do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Let's talk about our song of the day. Uh, because he was planning for weeks to be different than they were, John Adam only gave me four songs this week, and it left me with having to choose a song for this week because I didn't want to mess up the next week, which is going to have to be pushed till I get back because it's a five-day theme week, so we'll figure out something for next week. So I had to choose a song today myself. Dang it. And I thought about how often I tell you guys to make the most of your dash, and I thought, like, what is the most make the most of your dash song that I know of? And it's Five for Fighting's 100 Years. And I'll tell you that this song becomes more true to you the older you get, the more you'll understand it. And as you get into your mid and upper 40s and start to cross over that midlife area, you know, we talk about your, 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 you know, being middle-aged, being 50, but not a lot of people make it to 100. It's kind of special. So you know by the time you hit 50, for most people anyway, you've got more days behind you than in front of you. So by the time you're 47, like I am, or fixing to be anyway, you realize you're already there too. And uh, the the days where you had the most energy, the days where you could do anything, the days where you could climb a rock face or uh, jump out of an airplane and then get up the next day uh, after after having a, an all-night bender to celebrate jumping out of an airplane. Those days are kind of gone, and maybe it's a good thing some of them are. Uh, but you do start to come into touch with your mortality, and you start to question yourself. And this is what leads to, and this song alludes to it, in, in the, the middle years of men, generally it's men have this midlife crisis where they realize all this and it comes crushing down on them. I don't know how to cure that or prevent that or what have you, but I do know this. The more you make of your dash, the less of it you're going to have. Because it, as, as I've experienced it to a small degree myself, it's less about, man, I, uh, I, you know, I'm gonna, I, my, my life is going to end. I mean, I think we all know that intrinsically. And as I get older, we'll see how, how it changes as you, you know, you could measure your average expectancy 30, 40 years and start saying in five or 10, then, you know, it might seem a little different. Um, but it's what haven't I done or what time have I wasted? And here's the thing. You can look back with regret or you can look back fondly at the past. But the only thing you really have is today and tomorrow. And if you're here and you can still fog a mirror, then there's something good to be done with it. 
A weekend is coming. Enjoy your family, but do something significant. Do something significant every day. The way I've always described this is imagine that in your house somewhere there's a bottle. And that bottle is full of a bunch of blue, glowing marbles. And they're like batteries for your life. And there's a finite number of those marbles in that jar. And every day we get up and we look at that jar and there's a lot of marbles in it. We take a marble, we put it in our pocket, and it takes us through the day. In the morning when we wake up, the marble from the previous day is gone, and the only way we get to keep going is there's another marble in that jar. We can't see that jar. We don't know how many marbles are left in it, but it is there metaphorically. If we could see that jar, and we could watch that jar empty, we'd get a hell of a lot more done in our lives, and we'd focus a hell of a lot more on what matters. So just know that jar is there, your dash needs tending to, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Counting the ways to where you are